Hello, welcome to This Girl Can, where on a weekly basis I'm going to chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon and today I'm going to be talking to Jennifer Leng about her sliding doors moment, imposter syndrome and the importance of an optimistic mindset. In her most recent role, Jen was business franchise head of oncology at Novartis. Jen started her career in a sales role at Abbott and before long found herself moving down south to take up a secondment opportunity in head office. From Abbott to Bowringer and then to Novartis, Jen has been in the big pharma arena for over 20 years and I'm really excited to chat with her. So let's get started. Hi Jen, thank you for joining us. Hi Liz, thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Welcome to the first ever episode of This Girl Can. Okay, so before we begin, if you would please just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, because I'm sure you can introduce yourself far better than I could. Thank you. Thank, and thank you very much for having me. So I'm Jennifer. I've been in pharma for all of my career, which is just about 20 years. I started in sales. I did three years in as a rep in Glasgow in both primary and secondary care. And then I moved down into head office as a training manager for sales and marketing in specialty care products, hospital and specialty care products. And then from there, I, w- I went into marketing. I had the opportunity to do some marketing training and then go in and carry on and do my marketing diploma. Really ignited a passion in for communication, actually. Brand planning, strategy. I really enjoy that side of the business. And then from there, I went to franchise manager and then head of strategy, planning and organization, which I guess people might see maybe more as business excellence or operational excellence or depending which company you work for and what it's called. And then my the last role I've had is as business franchise head for oncology and um, for solid tumor oncology. So, um, so yeah, outside of that, I, um, I'm married. I have one daughter who is nearly seven. Um, we live in the south of England, despite my accent. We still live in the south of England, despite um, uh, what my mum would want, really. But um, but yeah, so yeah, that's me. So obviously you are from Scotland. So tell me about when you decided to move from Scotland down south. That was work-related as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and I guess this relates to what we talked about before around a kind of sliding doors moment. I always am curious as to what my life would have been like if I hadn't actually moved down to um, the south of England. I, for personal reasons, I hadn't, I'd been asked to move down a, a number of times for maybe about 18 months before I was able to. Uh, and then changing circumstances meant that I could take the opportunity. And um, I convinced myself that it was only going to be for six, and my mum, it was only going to be for six months, maximum two years. And uh, and 18 years later, I'm, um, she still asks me when I'm coming home, but I'm still... <laughs> Yeah, I, we, we're very much firmly, firmly down here. It, I don't think it, I don't think my career would have been limited if I had been in Scotland. I think I would have had to make different choices. I've got great friends that are, that carry on living in Scotland that now, and have had super successful careers working in probably a broader range of companies than I have had, have, I've done. They've worked for med devices, med tech, some like small startups, more research in some ways. Um, and I like to think that's probably what I would have done if I'd stayed. Um, but uh, but uh, but that's my, the choice I had and the choice I've continued to make. So I don't know what I'd have done if somebody wanted me to move down south. I've always said I'm I'm firmly northern, but it does make you wonder, you know, the the difference in your, the career that you would have. 
So those friends of yours that have stayed up north and they've moved around a bit more with smaller companies, I wonder if that's because obviously we have more manufacturing bases, especially up northwest around here, but head offices and those sort of more marketing roles do tend to be south-focused, don't they? They definitely do. And you can't, well, that's sort of undeniable. Again, especially for the big companies, I think there's some really mm-hmm. exciting, there are definitely some some smaller companies or other companies that have, in, in particular in Scotland, northeast of England as well, there's some that, that are, it's maybe not your traditional big pharma type of areas, but actually still exciting and still challenging and still yeah. just driven, I think. Um, I had a very good friend that, moved back to the north of England um, and now has got a global career in working with Smith and Nephew based up in Hull, now obviously in a global role. It still lives in the, still lives outside York, but can yeah. still can, can work in that. And I think, yeah, I'd like to think that if, if I'd stayed in Glasgow, then I would have probably diversified a little bit and maybe had more experiences, you know. Um, Did you meet your husband down south as well? Yeah. Yes, so he's from oh. Yorkshire. He is from the. He was. He was in the, living in the south of England. He was. He was in the military. Posted down here, and we were based sort of all the way down south, in different places in the south of England over the last ten years. Um, oh, wow. Okay, so he's in the military. Yes. Yeah. When you had your daughter as well. Yes, he was in the military when we had our daughter. Oh, um, wow. And yeah, I, I guess it, I, it, what it did. What was the sort of different choices that we had? It probably my career, I think, limited me, the us going to Germany or going to being posted um, in an abroad posting. So we we kind of stayed in South of England and moved around in those areas. But so I was always still able to work, or yeah. albeit maybe with a bit more of a commute to in certain circumstances. But it certainly impacted. You know, it wasn't just me that had to make a sacrifice in that one. It, it has also been him as well. So no. Yeah. So you gave us a, a good intro there in terms of the, the roles that you've done. And I know you started out, you had a fairly solid start at Abbott, didn't you? And then you had your daughter while you were still there. Is that right? Oh, no. So again, I think this is probably, it relates a little bit. I did, I was 12 years at Abbott. Um, <laughs> and again, one of those, another, probably a sliding door might, might resonate with people as well. I was at a point where, do I stay? And do I end up, you know, being a really long, you know, 12 years is a long time for, for, for any company, or do I take a big jump and go and work for, for other companies? And um, both have their merits. I chose to leave Abbott after 12 years, really to, to test myself a little bit. I kind of felt I was a bit, I didn't know whether I was, from my confidence perspective, I was kind of like, am I just a product of Abbott and I can't work anywhere else? Or do I have transferable? Yeah skills that I can work in different therapy areas, different, and, and actually get a little bit more experience in areas outside of the ones that Abbott, um, that Abbott are involved in or were involved in. So, um, so yeah, so I left after 12 years and did, uh, did a couple of contracting jobs for a year or two that allowed me to, to experience different cultures after 12 years at one, yeah. um, in one area, then in one company, I felt a bit institutionalized. And, and so I joined a company that was very, very focused in one area and in diabetes at Novo. And then I moved to Sanofi, which was my first experience of oncology and, and really to, to experience that, you know, to be from a very selfish perspective, to have those types of therapy areas on, on my own CV, but also different cultures in those two companies, which, you know, every culture you go to is very different and, and, and mm. finding one that I think fits you um, is really important. So when did you get that then, the the right culture, do you think? 
Um, I think uh, there was aspects of all of the places that I really enjoyed. I definitely personally enjoy cultures that are um, that are quite inclusive. You know, I, I've worked for companies that have been much, much better at it than others. And, and also over time, it's a lot to do with the leadership, the CEO that is, um, and, and probably where I've chosen to leave, it has been because there's been a big shift. And, you know, I'm a bit of a believer of, you know, I'd rather move and find somewhere else than stay and complain. Like, you know, so, I, you know, whether for right there, yeah. at, you know, at, where, where I've moved, it's for a different opportunity or for where I just haven't felt like we were, you know, that, that it, at home there. And I think that's important. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I completely agree. So if you go back over your career, when do you feel that you really you'd found your, your focus or do you not yet? Do you still, do you still feel like you're still on the hunt for that? Yeah, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. I think 100%. I really enjoy oncology, but it's not so much. I'm, I'm passionate about equity of access, about about patients being able to access medicines and, you know, and our role in that. And whether that be in oncology, I've worked in rheumatology, I've worked in HIV, I've worked in diabetes, and it's important wherever you are. And whichever, if you are this sibling, mother, daughter, all you know, of somebody who has a, a condition that that requires a life-changing medicine, then I, I believe that we should have access to it and we should, or we should at least know about it. At the very minimum, we should yeah. know and, and be able to, in some way, find out whether it's going to make a difference for them or not. So that, I think, is probably, that's probably where my purpose lies, that kind of equity of access and passion for patients. I, I love business. I think they're not mutually exclusive. I feel that we can, as, a, as an industry, whichever part, whether you're big pharma, life sciences then we um we provide we're a very valuable part of the system and it always frustrates me when we devalue ourselves and kind of always apologize for for being a business that um, and yeah. that provides medicine so yeah i'm passionate about our part in in, in the healthcare system I, I i do i love that that webinar i did recently we were talking about representatives and industry and their whole future and we had this conversation around the value that reps can bring and one of the things that really hit home to me is and I I used to feel it myself a lot as well um that need sometimes that you were wasting clinicians time or that and we shouldn't be then we shouldn't be taking up their time it's so important to re-establish the value and the purpose that why we do what we do and I think in the day job sometimes you can get lost in that it can seem like you're just there to relay a message at times in your career and I think I can pinpoint certain times over others where I felt it was really clear the good I was doing versus others I'd love to know more about how you go about in your more recent role at Novartis how you go about fostering that culture in a business yeah it's it's and thank you for the question because it's really it's something that I think that I've had a lot of questions about and especially through COVID post-COVID almost that has taken the focus away to what the role is and what the role should be and can be and should be. But we, this is really what's driven us. I, the role for me of the, and it's not just the camera that needs to change. It's actually every, it's actually every part of the process, every part of the communication chain and every part of the customer um, cycle. Everybody is responsible for customer interactions, whether you're head office or 
sales. It's marketing and sales together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Marketing absolutely. sales. But yeah. you know what? Even our medical uh, customer service, everybody that it's, we need to think about it as how do we, what is the experience that the customer has with us as Novartis yeah. or as Boring or, uh, or as Abbott, any places that are, that have a, an important message to send out. Um, and so everybody's roles have to change, whether you're a CAM, whether you're a brand manager, omnichannel specialist, a training manager, you know, um, light managers, MSLs, everybody has to kind of resettle themselves and as to where they are in the, in the process. The massive frustration for me is that when we undervalue or devalue our own roles, we've got a super important yeah. job um, to, to communicate what it is that we do, our medicines and what value they can bring to patients. And it's not just about the meetings that they get invited to or the sales aid or, or, or patient packs or anything like that. That's, they're all parts of the service, but actually the really key part is how do we help patients? have all the options have all of their options yeah um and that's through that's through the doctors that's through healthcare professionals doctors nurses pharmacists everybody but it doesn't mean that it's not an important job yes they can get some information online nowadays yes they can google stuff and they can look up e-medicines and find out what they need to know but actually if they've got a question like everything if you've got a question that you need to ask the person we need to have a person there they need to know who that person is and how to get hold of that person so yeah it's it frustrates people we devalue ourselves a little bit I think and almost what I said before around apologizing for what it is that we do and don't feel that actually it's important because it's really important to patients a really good example I I had um, somebody I used to work with when I was at Boringer contacted me about a a friend of hers who had been diagnosed with breast cancer had a specific mutation had a few lines of therapy and was kind of getting to the end and and we're looking for options and and because of the position and the knowledge that she had as her friend, she knew that there were other options and there were other options available. And, and so contacted me and who was able to get information through our medical team to, to speak to the doctor. And, you know, and it, it really highlighted to me that it's not, that, that what about, for what, what about the patients that don't have a friend that works in pharma? What about for the people mm-hmm. that don't have a friend no. that, you know, work happens to be franchise head of an oncology team in pharma. Um, That's, you know, what about those patients? And, and, you know, we should really, we should be reaching those patients. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not just oncology, it's any, it's all of the specialty area. If you've got somebody that you care about that has a condition that they need medicine for, then that's the most important condition that there isn't in the world. You know, that's, that's the most condition at that time. Um, Yeah. So yeah, it's important. Thank you. Okay, so let's go back a little bit, bringing it back to you personally, if that's okay. And the very start of your career, if you look back now, are there any key bits of advice since you, when you started in the industry, what sort of advice would you give yourself now if you could? Oh, great question. Um <laughs> Speaks lower probably is one of it's one of an early one. Um, yeah, I guess um, learn from everything. I have been, as I'm sure you have, and and everybody has. I get annoyed at you know when things haven't gone my way, when I've not got the job that I wanted, and all that sort of thing. But actually, if I could go back and just say the things that you learned from that process, the things that you learned from about yourself, about the company, about the role, then. 
it would have maybe put it in perspective and I maybe wouldn't have taken it so personally. I think probably is I can look back now and think at the times that I was so more and most annoyed and most frustrated and things were it was things were the most unjust things that ever happened, you know, and actually it was fine. Uh, you know, if things were fine and actually I was probably better off for, oh, either I was better off for that decision or that what I learned through that process was super handy for me for the next time I went through that process. So, yeah. um, so I guess like being a bit kinder to myself and being a bit more um, aware about, about what, about the things that, about the experiences I was having. And um, actually how valuable they are in themselves. Totally, totally. Um, yeah. The other thing, I guess, and it, maybe this is more of when laterally, but but actually in all the moves that I've had, is that everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. You know, you go into, uh, I came back from mat leave into a new role and felt totally overwhelmed. And everybody, the four other people that were in the role were, that were doing similar roles were more experienced. Um, they were all guys, they knew each other, they had lots of other things that they, you know, they had lots more in common, I thought, than I did. And um, and yeah, but that didn't make them better. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I, I I guess imposter syndrome, accept it, um, uh, be aware of, of it, of your own imposter syndrome yeah. and, and talk about it, talk about it. Don't, I, I, I can definitely look back where I've tried to, you know, with bravado get my way out of it but actually that probably didn't help me in the long run I should probably just have been a bit more I should have talked about it more However, I think I think everyone should talk about it more I think and I, I do think we're getting that way now I certainly I think humans were becoming more open about that but I abs I 100% agree there are so many times when before you do anything and I imagine in in so many of your roles if you've had to take to the stage and that the fear and the nerves and the and then you think well Everybody feels this, everything that everybody does. And I think if, if, if we talk about it more, then perhaps it will, it will change the way people approach things and perhaps people will be more willing to show that vulnerability and do it anyway, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. You're probably right. I think we're, we're, we're probably, as a business, as an industry, we're probably more, we're better we're getting there. We've still got a long way to go. There is a lot. I think, like you say, it's the... In fact, that's you've preempted another question there because you talked about coming back after maternity leave. So I was going to ask you about that and your return to work after having your daughter. Yeah, so when I came back, so the situation when I came back, I was off. I took about 10 months off. My daughter was just under 10 months when, she, when I went back to work. I chose to go back full time. Uh, but I went back to a different role in the same organisation. I went back to a franchise manager role. My decision to go back full time definitely affected the choice, our childcare choices. We didn't live close to either to any family at so all. We, you know, that kind of took us down the path of what we were going to do for childcare. And as I said before, I went back into a role where brand new, and there were four other people doing in different parts of the business doing a franchise manager job. Um, they'd been around for a bit longer than me, all guys. And yeah, I felt a bit kind of, I, I guess, uh, one, it was a bit strange going back to work after being off for, for 10 months and going into a new role, but also not feeling like, you know, that kind of, that sort of team. Uh, it, it was kind of difficult for me to readjust, I think. It was, and I was pretty, I didn't enjoy it, 
I don't think, for yeah. a good few months. Generally just being torn about Josie, who's my daughter, and being um, being in nursery, although she loved it. She learned more from yeah, nursery than she ever did from the 10 months of me. I liked the role pretty much, but the kind of environment was different. It changed for me. I had changed, I think. I don't underestimate that I had changed. But I made a conscious choice to stay there until I'd learned everything I could. I took whatever I could from it in order to take to my next role. So I, I, after, when I'd made that decision, it actually, I can enjoyed it. It freed me up quite a lot. I accepted that all these things were going to be data points for me. They were going to be good answers to competency-based questions for my next interview that I was going to be doing and for my, for my next role. So, um, so that, and then when that eventually happened, it was, uh, I still worked full time, but I joined Novartis. It was closer to where I lived and where Josie was at nursery. And a, a, more, a culture that I was felt was more flexible and a bit more accepting of, of the situation. I don't believe my situation was any better or worse than anybody else. It just, it was my situation. And I guess it's just being a bit cognizant that not one size is not going to fit all. And it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't. It's not anybody's fault. It's just go choose to do something that is positive and, and go to an environment where you feel more valued or and fit your lifestyle more. I think... Reflecting on that time in particular for any woman, actually. So that return to work anyway after having children, hey, emotionally, you talked about it, you make the decision and you know they're fine. <laughs> they're absolutely fine when they're in nursery, but still all the mum guilt, all, all, that's very real. You started a different role anyway. That in itself is a challenge, let alone having to deal with the emotional, personal separation for, from your child. I think anyone going through that time... I, don't think it's possible to overstate how much of an impact that has on you when you go through that and then to then take that attitude that you did and put it towards finding using that to be an ex-competency-based interview and and gathering the experience that's it takes an awful lot of strength to do that but I just I wonder how many how much more support is needed when women do return to work from maternity leave and I don't know, I'm speculating, but I, as I say, I think it would be impossible to give too much support in those situations, really, because it is tough, without doubt. It's, I think when you, there's lots of different things, that, there's lots of impact. I think, thankfully, we talk lots more about changes in people's lives, whether it be having a, a child or having more than one child or or the process of having to go through to get to that child or... At the other end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. and people are talking about, as everybody is at the moment, about menopause, about mm -hmm. mental health, especially in in uh, uh, within with men and getting them talking, and within a, a, a certain age group, all those people. I think it, I think those things would come on leaps and bounds for all those things. I think we had a conversation about previously around when did I become aware of my gender being impacting my career at all, and I guess. When you have a baby, that does become becomes more important. I am. I have got. I come from a family of sisters. I I went to a girls' school, so I wasn't. When I joined, when I started working, I wasn't particularly um, aware of that there would be differences. And it was only when you start seeing people, especially as a young marketeer, seeing people that were sort of senior brand manager, marketing manager, leaving to have families, and then coming back. Whether it be, you know, some of them came back part-time, some of them came back full-time, but actually, like, a feeling that they had to apologise for leaving on time to go and pick up their children yeah. or actually apologising for 
only being paid to work four days a week, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and not working on a Friday or whatever day they chose not to work. And actually, actually sticking to those days. Oh, <laughs> and, you know, and actually, like, it really, thankfully, I think it is, a bit, it is less now. I think flexible working and, and has, has leveled this out a bit. And actually, there's a lot more responsibility for that side of things on on dads and husbands and things on, yeah. on your partners for, for that as well. So that's leveled it out slightly. But equally, flexibility works both ways. I'm all for us being flexible for whatever people's situations are, whether they whether it's childcare, dog care. I've got a dog that's actually more of a nightmare to get care for now than Josie is. But it or, or whatever it is, you've got partners living abroad in the military, doing, you know, yeah. families that live so far away. There's lots of things that we need to be flexible for. But in order to do that, then as a business, we also need to kind of sustain ourselves. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Okay. So at the moment, you're hearing more and more women suffering from burnout. And that's post-COVID working, whether they're working flexibly at home or they're going into the office or feeling that they should be in the office when they're actually needing to work from home. So you've got that side of it, the burnout. But then you have the other side of the scale, which I think is where this great resignation mindset is coming from which is the someone called it bored out <laughs> and uh and i quite liked that it's you there doesn't seem to be the nice middle ground or if you do find that nice middle ground it's perhaps rare where you're either doing everything and doing it all and doing your own head in or you're just going through the motions and then you're lacking that stimulation and that that magic something that gives you the umph. I definitely have, but I wouldn't tell you that, I couldn't tell you that I recognised it in the moment. I think it's only outside with, with hindsight or when you, ref, with reflection, you think, ah, oh, that's why, that's why I didn't enjoy that or that's why that wasn't giving me an awful lot of energy or that's why I was, you know, that's why I was bored or whatever, or that's yeah. why I, you know, um, got really, really annoyed or really upset about that because it wasn't really to do with what it, what the actual topic, it was because I was just bored. <laughs> and so, so, yeah. I, so absolutely, yeah. I think it's, and I think what I would, um, I think COVID, when we, we all went absolutely hell for leather, we all, you know, everything was, it was, it was 24 seven, we were trying to do everything. And in my case, feeling miserably at, at, at quite a few of those things. Um, it's only with reflection and actually taking the time to think about it. And that's something that I, I'm not, I don't meditate. I've tried to, I'm just, I just haven't, I've never managed to do it. But I definitely find time now to just switch off, whether it be like, you know, walking the dog at six o'clock in the morning or even just watching something rubbish a rerun of friends on the tv like i just yes. find that i need that time love that <laughs> to just to do switch off and to not be a business franchise head not be not be a mom to a seven year old and not be a not be all these other things to other people that i just need the 24 minutes of a friends episode to just yes. feel like i've done that something for myself so that, there is uh, nothing a friends episode can't fix <laughs> There is not. Right, it never gets. It's never. It will never get old. I don't think. I hope it never gets old. No. Um, no, but, never. But yeah. So, like, like that's. I think what what I missed when I was. It's, do you know what? It's what I missed from moving from the field into the office is the driving time. I, I didn't realize how much yeah. it took from the. But then when I had when I I moved to an office much closer to the house and to where I live, but also when I wasn't driving anywhere because of COVID, I missed 
that time in the car, that that half yeah. hour, however long it was at various times of my career, um, whether it be chatting on the phone to somebody or or just listening to music or something. Yeah. I missed that time, that sort of decompression time. And so, yeah, so trying to build some of that back into your day, however way you want to do it. Yeah, I think yeah that's a really good point, actually. Obviously, I, now I work from home and have done for years. And we only have one car here where I live. I can get a met anywhere. It's it, There's just no need to have two cars, and especially if one's just going to sit outside all day. But so when I do get in the car, there's there's something about being completely on your own. I mean, you know, I do have a house full of children, so it is there's a, there's a relative escape there, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But getting in that car and having that time completely to yourself, whether it's turning the music that I want to listen to up really, really loud or getting stuck into a podcast or whatever, it is It's just that me time, isn't it, that, that it's it's too easy to lose. So what I was wanting to ask you, and I don't know if you even know the answer to this yet, but what's next for you, do you think? Um, That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. I have, I've been fortunate and super grateful for having had six weeks now to really, to have some brilliant conversations with people from all different parts of our industry. So from people from that have been in big pharma, that have moved to biotech, that have moved to start up their own business. You're still being one of them, Liv. Um, but also, huh. you know, people that have gone to work in the NHS, people that have worked in the NHS that have come into, people that have worked in clinical trials. Like, I really have. I've spoken to loads of different people. And because I really feel like I want to take the opportunity to, to make sure that I'm going to learn something from whatever I do next, it might be exactly the same. And that's fine. But equally, it might be... It might not be the job that I do for forever and ever. And I'm kind of comfortable with that now. I've had a lot of advice and people talking saying, you know, it's fine to go on to do something that you only do for a year, maybe 18 months, as long as it takes you to the next place. You know, that's a good thing. So so I, I am super open to, to whatever it might be. But I, what I will definitely take with me is this time that I've had to, to re- ignite my passion for speaking to people and actually my general interest in people and how they've and how they've moved their career or how they've moved through their career and taking some time to for myself to find out that that's been what I've really learned a lot of in these last few weeks it's I read something recently about we talk a lot about resilience about resilience in our workforce resilience in our Children, in for lots of different reasons, everybody's talking about being, you know, we have to be more resilient. But I read something recently that was, actually, is it about resilience or is it is it about optimism? And uh, and that it just hugely struck a chord with me. And I, I, I've told lots of people about it now, but but actually, I, I am optimistic. It's not about being resilient to the to the the hardships or the things that have, that are that have not been ideal in whatever aspect of your life, but it's about actually being optimistic that that actually things will there will be opportunities at the end of it. And 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 now when I talk to about when I think about what I can teach my my daughter or what I can instill in in the teams that I work I'm going to be working with in the future is it's not I won't talk about resilience. I'll talk to I'll talk about optimism. And I am absolutely optimistic in the future and in, in what I'm going to do next. That's so true. In our industry, the one thing you can always be sure of, it's been said throughout my whole career, and I'm sure it has to you too, 
The only thing you can be absolutely certain of is that there will be another change around the corner. So you can face that one of two ways. You can face it with fear and dread, or you can face it with the optimism that we get on with it and we see what's next. It's that roll your sleeves up and go, okay, what's next? Yeah, no, and, and even resilient, the connotations of resilience are that it's something that you have to steal yourself against, that it's it yeah, really something negative up against yeah. something bad, like change. Yeah. You know, what if the change was amazing? What if the change yeah. was that that actually the role of the camera, the role of the brand manager, the role of, you know, that that actually what ha- what what if the change meant that patients were able to find out about all their options and that they were able to you know, you know, their physicians knew every single medicine that was going to be available to them. What if, what if that was the the outcome of it? And and that that would be great. Oh, wouldn't it just? Wouldn't it be amazing to have a relationship between the NHS and industry that was so positive and so in sync that everybody understood the value that each person has, and then therefore the key players in it actually felt that as well if it it would be a great place to be absolutely I have one more question for you I suppose I'm keen to know if you have a crew or a specific person you don't have to name them but has there been someone who's played a key part for you people that you go to and bounce things off and chat it through with absolutely absolutely I couldn't definitely I could not do this without a number of people. Um, I... I mean, you can name them if you want, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have to. <laughs> um, no, I'm sure they know who they are. They... I'm fortunate that I still have some very, very good friends from when I started school, like at the age of two, three, that I that help, that I can go to. But I, equally, I'm super fortunate of having people that I've worked with. And it's not everybody in the world that I've worked with. And sometimes it's the, not the person that you thought it was going to be. You know, that when you left a company, the person that you thought you would keep in contact with or that would help you most is not maybe not, might not be the person that, that works out that way. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I definitely would not be able to have confidence in my decisions, be able to admit when I'm wrong without people that are willing to tell me that. And so it's really important that I have people around to be that, that will challenge me, that will challenge my thinking, tell me that I'm wrong, show me different ways to do things, but also give me confidence that when, on, on the occasions where, you know, that the, that helped me have confidence in some of my decisions as well, yeah. that they were, that they are the right, they were the right things at the time. And I sense check almost everything. It's not a weakness. It's just that actually it's, I, I am, I'm, I'm definitely work better as part of a, a crew, if you like. Um, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I, those people, they're people that I have not worked with for 15 years, maybe more than that, but, um, but they are super important to me. So they still yeah, play I, a part. it's, uh, yeah, I, I, you can't underestimate it. It's definitely, especially through COVID when you're sitting at home and you're not seeing people all the time, but it's great when you're in the moment and you're, there's lots and lots happening. Then actually somebody outside having a bit of perspective on the situation is yeah. super important. And and I am super fortunate and grateful for the people that I have. And I hope I hope I'm I am that for some people as well. Yeah, well, yeah, same, hundred <laughs> percent. But also I suppose at a point when, when you're in these pivotal moments in your life, and they are pivotal whenever you go through anything that any career change, they're the ones that that help you see the other side, aren't they? You know. Uh, we've talked about imposter syndrome 
it's very easy to to feel that you know something isn't quite you you can't do something you know you don't quite meet the job spec or whatever and it's those people if you have enough of those around you that can say actually you can do that that's got you all over it you'd knock that out the park or it i it's so important to have that when you when you're making big steps in your career i think yeah and i think it gives it's people uh, and and sometimes it's like people just from my industry from our industry that are that that are helpful but like you know to to relate back to what we talked about before is that actually um in i've i happened to have a very traditional route in pharma you know i went sales i went training i went marketing i've uh, you know i've done a very linear kind of what people maybe would have expected but actually those people that are able to look out, look, have a bit of perspective and look, you know, and, and say, yeah, but what if you did this? What if you did? And that's what I'm benefiting from listening to people now. What if you didn't go to a big pharma company or what if you went back to Scotland and, and did this or worked for yourself or did that? Like it, it's all, you know, people, it, sometimes it really helps you see the wood for the yeah. trees, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I, as I said before, I'm grateful that I'm fortunate that I've been able to take a few weeks to do this. And yeah, I, I, I think it's opened up lots of questions and lots of opportunity and lots of and given me lots of optimism. I, I feel like we're going to need a part two because I'm dying to know what you're going to do next. So <laughs> <laughs> I may well be coming back to you in a year or so, Jen. Uh, excellent. You're very welcome. It'll be great to speak to you. <laughs> okay. Um, listen, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been fabulous. And as I say, I'm absolutely dying to see what you're going to do next, but I think it'll be fantastic. So thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our very first episode of This Girl Cam. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode this week and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and post about it on whatever social media platform you tend to use. Or even better, leave me a rating and a review. To be the first to know who our guest is next week, Subscribe via the website at www.thisgirlcam.com and you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again everyone and I will look forward to seeing you all next week.